that jarring cacophony tells you that you're listening to the Power of Three podcast, the podcast that's made in Scotland from girders and loves to celebrate Doctor Who and all its forms, whether on TV, books, animations or audio. I'm Kenny Smith and I've got a co-conspirator this week as some 50 miles away from me on the opposite side of the country. It's my pal of more than 20 years and he's also these days a very popular big Finnish writer. It's Roy Gill. Hello, Roy. Hey, Kenny. How you doing? Very well, thanks. Uh, we were just chatting before we started recording about the horrible weather that we've got in Scotland at the moment, and fingers crossed it improves before too long. Yeah, fingers crossed. It should be nice and atmospheric for this wee chat, though, I guess. So. Absolutely. Just hope that the wind and the rain don't start smashing through our respective windows, and then we're in trouble. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so this week, we're going to chat about your recent Ninth Doctor audio, mm-hmm. The Way of the Buryman and The Fourth Generation. So let's yes. wind the clock back and do you remember when you got that first approach to write it? Yes, yeah, because it it really came out of nowhere, <clears throat> I think. There hadn't been the slightest hint that I'd heard that Chris was, Chris Eccleston was up for doing uh, Doctor Who on audio. So it was really a, a wonderful surprise. And I think that very first email made it quite clear that, you know, not only was this, this was very, very close to being a done deal, but um, we, they were looking for ideas. And uh, also a reminder to, to say absolutely nothing to anybody because, <laughs> you know, it was all very top secret and hush hush. So it was, it was very, very exciting. I mean, I can't think of, I mean, any being asked to write for any doctor is a new challenge and uh, a new thrill and a bit of excitement. But obviously, with Chris, there was the added knowledge that he'd done this this single year in television, which had been wildly successful and really excellent series, and he hadn't done more. And the inc- the indications we'd had since then was that he possibly wouldn't be willing to. So it really was very exciting that perhaps things had changed and he was he was happy and interested to come to come back to this part so yeah i remember the thrill of that email yeah. <laughs> i'm sure it was head, headed something like a fantastic top secret project or something which was almost an end <laughs> yeah it's good that matt fitton didn't play it up in any way whatsoever <laughs> yeah <laughs> why don't we listen to a trailer for the whole box set roy would you like to do that Yes, let's listen to a trailer for the whole box set, Kenny. From Big Finish Productions, Doctor Who, The Ninth Doctor Adventures, Old Friends. Welcome, welcome to my funeral. Sarah Jane always knew you'd go distinguished. Or was that Harry? Explain the USP. Our premium service allows for the most personal farewell between the deceased and their loved ones that science can presently provide. For a few hours, we can restore their mind and body to the very peak of health. But what for? So the dead can return and attend their own funerals. Ollie! What? What's wrong? I thought we were going at the same time. It would have looked amazing. Remember, killer on the loose. Yep, got that. Thanks. And try not to worry, but this is going to hurt. What? Me? No, me! Brigadier Alistair Gordon Lethbridge-Stewart. Hello? You open? I only just got here, mate. Okay, whatever. Uh, one Americano, one hazelnut latte, as soon as you can. 
Do what? You know about green men? <laughs> like you wouldn't believe. You love it. Every single moment. I can tell. Yes, well, it uh, pays to keep the hand in. That's why I've been helping out down at the base. What base is that? Running log of the HMS Columba experimental sub, day 312. At his son, the doctor's a sterling chap, and please, please call me Alistair. My shouting days are over. As you like, Alistair. I'm Sam Bishop, second lieutenant. What is this machinery about you, this fearsome engine? Big finish for the love of stories. He saved so many of them, no matter how dangerous it was. Wonderful work. Such a pity he's dead. So, given that you were asked for initial ideas, I take it that setting it in and around Edinburgh was something that you thought of pretty early on. Well, setting it around the Fourth Bridge rather than in Edinburgh, to be honest, so around the Fourth Estuary and so on. I mean, I think I pitched a, a few ideas, uh, one of which uh, I uh, I thought would be the one to go for, and they didn't. But who knows? These things can sometimes come back later. And this one, the original idea is pitched was about, was set during the time the Fourth Bridge uh, 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 was being built, so late 19th century. And that struck me as something that would fit with Chris's Ninth Doctor, because he has an interest in humans doing big, remarkable things. You know, I could I could hear him in my head enthusing about this 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 incredible feat of engineering and this innovative thing, which was you know at the time it was something completely the world hadn't seen something like that, and it was set during that time, and there was reference definitely reference to the Barryman, which is this this weird kind of figure, part of this annual ritual that goes on a walk around the town of South Greensbury and felt to me like it should be in a Doctor Who story because if you've ever, you know, if you go online and have a wee search for a picture and you'll find loads because there's articles about it every year. It's a very extraordinary looking thing. And I knew from the start what I didn't want to do was simply do The Burry Man's an Alien because that seemed to me too obvious. But what struck me as more interesting was the idea that it might be a reaction to an alien or the solution to a problem involving aliens. And because nobody knows why this ritual's been going on, nobody even knows exactly how long it's been going on. And nobody really knows why it happens. There's lots of theories, but there's no absolute proof. So it's, it seemed to me interesting that it could be something which explained, which, you know, it was the reaction to an alien visitation in some way. So that those ideas were all in the original pitch and what then happened was uh, I think Matt came back and said a little, a little down the line oh, we like we like this idea and I think that this figure would be interesting to Chris as well and we are thinking of doing a Cyberman two-parter I was going to say at this point I don't know how spoilery I should be oh no go for it because this. we'll make sure it's clear for spoilers yeah. and also that we would have the Brigadier and we'd have uh, Sam Bishop and it was going to be a two-parter and that was quite obviously another exciting thing for me the idea that it was going to be the finale of the season and so on and he wanted to see if these ideas would perhaps work with my Berryman story i actually i, I quite like getting things 
thrown at me and kind of it's, it's kind of like putting together a puzzle working out how, how all these pieces might might come together and working out how they fitted kind of uh, it took a while but it, ga it gave me the rest of the story really because I knew for example it was going to be the older brigadier we were working with so that kind of gave me a time period as well because you know Battlefield is kind of nominally in the 90s, so it was going to be roughly the 90s to the early 2000s. And because of that time, I knew that we were going to be looking at an earlier version of Sam than we'd met before. So it immediately suggested to me this tantalizing possibility that we could maybe do a bit of an origin story and he wouldn't actually be in, in unit yet. And that would mean the figure would be, he'd be accessible to people who hadn't necessarily listened to all the, the unit series that Big Finish had done because we were getting the start of his story. The, the Brigadier, the fact we were working with the older Brigadier dictated the time period, the fact that we had Sam dictated what kind of version of the character he'd be. And then I was looking at ways of, of, um, of the Cyberman fitting into this story. And I wanted to keep some of the, the sort of the, the passion and the interest in, of how the bridge was built. And so that became, we have this sort of historic flashback scene at some point uh, between the two episodes, essentially. And we have the ghosts of the bridge, which kind of tell you a little bit about how it was built and circumstances and so on. So it, they, 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 they stayed part of the story, but they came there in a, diff, in a different way. And I was thinking through, I mean, Cybermen and the bridge and I immediately started thinking about you know the architecture of the bridge and what would it be like to have these sort of 19th century steampunk cybermen I thought that was a really cool visual in my head and so I was sort of working out the rationale of how long they've been there and that kind of thing all these factors just really seemed to coalesce and, and come together it took a lot a lot, a lot of shaping but I hope I ended up with something where all the parts were quite tightly interwoven well as you know I've listened to it uh, three times now Good stuff. <laughs> I much enjoy it. Everybody else should be listening to it at least five times because I've read the scripts. I think it. that's the bare minimum, don't you? Exactly. And <laughs> buying five copies as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh -huh. Definitely have. Definitely have that. And something that I was wondering about there is just you mentioned the historic side of it. Did you do quite a bit of research into the building of it? Because I'd imagine that you know, the Fourth Bridge is it's something that I think in this part of the country, sort of central belt, we know a bit about it, but maybe not a huge amount. For example, I, I'd always known that people would have died during the construction, but mm. I think it's something that's very Ninth Doctor era, sort of to highlight the fact that there were casualties when this was yes. being built. Yeah, yeah, to, to, ha to highlight the sacrifices that were involved in the project. I mean, again, that time period is interesting when it's set because there is now a memorial in South Queensbury to the people who died when the bridge was being built and that took a degree of research obviously to put together this this list of of names and so that wouldn't have been there when this story was set so that again that kind of gave me a little bit about the Fiona character became someone who was very interested in in local history and it was one of the things she wanted to to be built so I guess that I was adapting real life to fit into the, into the story there. And um, I mean, I was aware of, of a degree of, of the history of the bridge because I mean, I, I, I come from Edinburgh originally, but I kind of grew up largely in Fife, also a number of years in Kirkintilloch outside Glasgow. And I spent a lot of time as a kid going back and forth 
because we had family in different places and because we were going, you know, with things to do and so on. So I spent a lot of time going over the bridge in one way or other. And it was kind of, it's kind of been in my mind for a long, long time. And weirdly enough, this sort of images, and this is where we do get quite spoilery, I can vividly remember going over the bridge uh, and looking at these big, big kind of these steel, almost like cylinders it's built out of. And thinking to myself, wouldn't it be amazing if there were cybermen inside that? And so that image has been with me since I was a tiny kid, you know. Uh, it's weird how sometimes these things, they take, they, they percolate for a long time and then they pop out again. So, I mean, I was aware of a, a, a lot of the things. I went and uh, watched some documentaries about the building of the bridge and how obviously in some ways it was a response to the Tay Bridge disaster, the knowledge that they had to come up with a new way of creating this cantilever structure to make something that would be secure and safe. And all these tests that were done to make sure it would, you know, that it would come together and work and how, yeah. So I, I looked into all that. One thing that is interesting, I mean, we were writing, we were working on these during lockdown. So there was a limit to things I could do that I probably would have done some deep delves into library and stuff as well. But, you know, I think I had enough material as, as it was. But even then, like, I probably also would have taken a day trip to go to Inchcombe Island. And I, I have been to Inchcombe Island, which is used in the story. Again, it's a real location. It's, it's close to the bridge. It's in the estuary. Uh, there's, a, there's definitely an abbey there. There is not a secret military base underneath it. But I, I probably would have taken another trip just to get some, you know, get some images in my head. And that wasn't possible at the time I was working on this. But what I did do is I remembered going there as a kid on a day out with my dad. And I remembered going up the stair inside the abbey. And I mean, I wasn't fully grown then, but I remember how tight this staircase was and, you know, really claustrophobic. And that popped back into my head when I was writing the story later when the Cybermen are attacking the, the base on Inchcombe and the, and the Brigadier is looking for a way to, to escape. And he thinks, oh, well, this stairs made for 12th century monks. Cybermen aren't going to be able to fit up it. So again, it was really funny how things which had been lurking in the back of my head for so long just suddenly popped up at the right moment and came together. <laughs> it's quite uh, interesting how you mentioned that childhood stuff and obviously that influenced Lisa with her story, again, set in Scotland, mm -hmm. up the road in Dundee. I think it's fab that these things all sort of fit together one way or another. There's something you mentioned there was you were crossing the river, you were going back and forth, which I thought was very yeah, funny. Yeah. I don't know if you intended that <laughs> yes. or not. But yeah, it's definitely talking about the Cybermen coming out of the bridge. Uh -huh. Absolutely, you can see yeah, that yeah. sort of like the silos in Earthshot where they're bursting through. But I visualise the Cybermen as definitely being steampunk and the same sort of rusty colour as the fourth bridge yes. rather than being in silver. Was that how you envisaged them? Yes, yes. definitely. Yes, I, that's how I, I think there's even a, a, a line when Fiona sees them coming out the bridge and she kind of says they've got the same kind of rivets, they've got pistons, they've got the same kind of rivets around their joints and they've got this kind of reddish, metally steel look to them that would, because they're being, they've been built, their casings have been built by the people who are working on the bridge, so that's what, that's what they look like. So that's definitely how I envisage them. And I think they were described in, in, the, in the script as well as a sort of 19th century steampunk version of the Cybermen, because you, you do find yourself putting things in, in the scripts which 
it might seem odd to people, but you put things in the scripts that are guidance for actors and directors and sound designers as well. You know, so they, this might not, this information might not directly translate to something which is said or a, a sound, but you want everyone to be sharing the same kind of picture in their heads and then it all kind of comes together. So that that was definitely my, my concept of it. Yeah, and I'd imagine that getting the commission to write these scripts it would be a damn good excuse to go back and watch all those Eccleston episodes again. It was, yes, uh -huh. and and watch all the all all the uh, the Cyberman episodes as well. So I, I kind of went in with a with a knowledge. I mean, I'd have the knowledge anyway. Let's be honest. But, you know, everything was fresh at the, at the, at the front of my mind, and uh, yeah. If you find when you rewatch that year, you just—I mean—I'm always blown away by that. The, the first year of the Doctor Who revival, what a tight set of scripts it is, and my God, so exciting and so dynamic, and pushing Doctor Who into areas it hadn't been in before. So you, there's a certain pressure there to, you know, pay homage to that in a way that feels right. You know, to to keep some of that excitement and dynamism and the big emotional content as well is very important I think. Yeah and there's some lovely wee gags in there there's obviously the joke about uh, you know lots of planets have a Scotland and it's yeah difficulties <laughs> trying to keep them which is great and obviously yeah, yeah. a nice wee nod to Scottish independence campaigns and also the other one that made me giggle was when Chris gets to say "Made in Scotland" you know, the, the, from Girders, the Iron Brew slogan. He really went for that as well. Uh, gave it a, 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 an interpretation of, a, of a, a Scots accent as well, which made me laugh. So that was great. Yeah, yeah, he got the reference. <laughs> yeah, definitely, which is fab. It's, it's nice when these wee things get picked up on. The Ninth Doctor, because he's you know part of I guess the Russell T Davies style of reinvention Doctor Who. He is someone whose sources he draws upon. Uh, Doctors in the classic series, you know, they, they, they knew lots of things to do with science and great literature. The modern doctors also have this understanding of pop culture as well. So they're going to drop in references to, to music and adverts and, and film and telly and songs and all kinds of things as well. That's something that I thought came across really strongly was you absolutely got this doctor's voice. Was that something you were quite pleased with? Did you feel that you got it during the writing and just getting it across there? Yeah, I, I hope so. I mean, it's interesting when, certainly when I was listening to it being recorded, there were lines that, you know, are exactly come out how you imagine them, you know. And then there's places where the act takes them to a different place. And that's, that's great as well, because you see something new in it. That's how it comes alive, really. I mean, I quite liked how wholeheartedly, when the Doctor and the Brig are reunited, how wholeheartedly he goes for hugging the brig, you know. He's like, oh, come here! And you know, the, the, there's real energy to that. I think you hear the, the, the brigadier kind of going all stiff and blustering, how I say, you know. Uh, and uh, yeah, he he's, um, goes for everything with sincerity and truth, I think. That's an absolute hallmark of him as an actor and his doctor, I think. Yeah, there's some so, great stuff. Yeah. The, the dialogue between them, particularly when the Briggs trying to find out about what's happened to the Doctor in the Time War. And it's just the fact that he just sort of kills the conversation with one line. And it's, it's just absolutely, you can tell there's something big has happened. And the Brig picks up on it in the case of don't ask about it. If he wants to talk about it, he will talk about yeah. it in the way that friends do. Yeah. 
and I absolutely loved that. That was an interesting thing. I mean, one of the things which guided the, the stories for this series was an understanding of what Chris wanted to do with the character. So they're, they're existing in quite an interesting space, really, because in they're set before Rose, story-wise, but at the same time, they are also a second year for Chris as the Doctor. So he's pushing his character forward. You know, he had definite views about what he sees as his character's strengths and what, what he does and doesn't want to do. And I had some guidance that he really didn't want to lean heavily into the sort of traumatized side of the Doctor. And I wanted to respect that whilst being true to, I guess, the character we saw on screen and the character, the Brigadier. So it's there and it's just, sometimes the conversation seems to go, there's a couple of times the, the Brigadier guides him towards that and the Doctor kind of steps around it and pushes it away. And then the moment when it all comes together, I think the moment when the truth of that heart comes out is when he's watching the Brigadier, again, we're quite very spoilery here, but the Brigadier's resolve to help these half human, half Cybermen hybrids to a better life. And the doctor's, you know, thinking, my, my, this, this person's changed, he's learned. And the Brigadier says, they're survivors. And the doctor says, we're all survivors, Brigadier. And Chris's delivery of that line, I just, it really sent shivers down my spine. Because that's the moment, they're not, they don't necessarily talk about in terms of the doctor's trauma, but they can, he, he can access that, that pain is there when he's relating it to things that other people are going through. And I felt that was the best way to handle it. And I was very absolutely blown away with what the actors did with those moments. So I was very, very happy with that. Yeah, um, you, yeah. you mentioned there that you were listening in to the recording days and what a great cast brought together by Helen as director, oh, Helen yeah. Goldwyn. And Helen Goldwyn. it must have been so good, just an exciting. So obviously you couldn't be in studio, but to hear it as live, Chris Eccleston getting another season finale and it's all your words. It was hugely, hugely exciting. I mean, I was kind of on the edge of my seat all day long listening to it. And that's not to say there aren't laughs or jokes between scenes or occasionally if someone stumbles on a line, it causes a laugh or whatever, that kind of thing. There's a lot, there's, you know, there's a good sense of fun happening as well. But you could feel the intensity of the scenes playing out also. And it's this weird kind of thing because, you know, we were all in disparate locations right around the country when that was being recorded. I think it was just Chris and Warren who were in the studio together. And even then they wouldn't have been necessarily face to face or anything. But, you know, you're all networked together via headphones and you're all networked together via the story you're reading as well. And you can feel the atmosphere coming together. I mean, I think we were all really blown away by what Eleanor Lawless did in her scenes. I mean, I was just so, so impressed with her work in this. And one of the things I was saying when Helen was talking to me afterwards and I was just saying, saying, gosh, she was amazing. And we were kind of agreeing that one of the important things to do would be because she performed her lines without any cyber voice modulation that was going to be done in post. So one of the important things would be to keep the modulation 
quite like because we wouldn't want to lose any of that performance. And I, I'm having heard the, the final episodes, uh, I think it comes across beautifully. And talking of voice modulation, Nick Briggs giving us some very different Cybermen. Yes, didn't he? Didn't he? Yeah, so it's interesting because Creel and that, uh, the name, I wanted to give the Cybermen a name because 10 Planet Cybermen have names. And I actually started, this is funny, I started, well, I find it funny, maybe as well. <laughs> I started with Creel as a name because <laughs> it sounded like a Cybermen name. And there's also a fishing village in Fife called Creel, you know. And then I checked back my program guide or whatever on 10th Planet, and one of the Cybermen is called Creel. So I can have that. So I changed it to Creel. And the joke being, because if you get Fisherman's Creels or whatever, the joke being that uh, Fiona then thinks it, her, his name is McCreel and he's one of the survivors as well, you know. So the Cybermen were kind of characterized as uh, Mondasian Cybermen because I wanted something, you know, old and ancient that had been there a long time. But I don't think I necessarily wanted, and Nick certainly didn't give that very distinctive uh, Tenth Planet Mondas voice, because I don't think it's necessarily compatible with the type of lines he had to give. So he gives something quite malevolent and ancient and decayed, and I thought he was great, actually. And uh, I think um, particularly in the scene, the scene at the very start of part two, when uh, Creel, sorry, infiltrates his way into the into the industrial works, building the bridge to take over and uh, use their facilities. What I had in my head was those scenes in 10th Planet, which are still incredibly spooky, where the Cybermen have landed and they attack the people who come out of the base and you see their human hands and so on, and they steal the Parkers, the Parker jackets, and they put them round them. And there's something incredibly spooky about this strange, distorted human face with a, like a Parker Oasis type jacket around them. And I know it, it's also a wee bit ludicrous, but I think that's very Doctor Who. And I had it completely in my head that here he was as a, going in as a 19th century gentleman in a big jacket and a muffler wrapped around him and a top hat. And so I think Nick, I think, really rose to the occasion of finding a voice that, you know, he keeps on, I think there's a bit in the extras where Helen's kind of saying, you know, he or, or, or Nick's saying, he's trying to push down the Cyberman part of himself and that just actually makes him sound even more ill or even more decayed with all the, the you know, the things that clocked up his breathing. So, I, yeah, I thought it was a, a fabulous turn from Nick in this story. Did you think so? Oh, brilliant. It's the fact that there's so different, the, the characters are there, different ones between fourth generation Cybermen. In fact, there's some of them having a conversation. There's very much distinct personalities between them and you can differentiate between which one's the cyber leader which one's the equivalent of a cyber lieutenant or it might just be a cyber man. And obviously, yes. just yeah. fab. And we get, really, really we get a, a tiny wee boy bit of Invasion era voice as well because there's a cyber head from Invasion. Yes. Which, of course, I was 100% thinking of that scene at the start, start of Dalek mm -hmm. where they land in Van Staten's museum and the Doctor sees a cyber head in a case and kind of says, hello, old friend, which is pretty much what he says when he opens another uh, invasion unit of Cyberhead in a case in this story and sees it. So who knows if it's the same one? Who can tell? But mm. these little homages are nice things to do, I think. Yeah, I hope and, so anyway. And of course, this was the concluding part of, I suppose it's in some ways, it's a trilogy in four parts of 
story set in Scotland during this first run and the fact that we find out why yes. there is a very subtle link there. It's not huge in your face, but it's nice to have that. It was actually a surprise to me to know that there were going to be another couple of stories set in Scotland. Great. <laughs> I, I, I thought I'd be the only one bringing that location to the table, but uh, as it turned out, it became a wee mini theme of the season. And why not? In much the same way, Chris's season on telly was a mixture of space and London, the wee dolp of Cardiff, you know, why not? It always kind of, um, one thing that always hits me, it always winds me up slightly when people comment about accents or locations, but only if they're outside London, you know, why not? Why not? There's no reason every alien should have a Southern English accent. You know, other accents are available. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. It is Chris, true. Yes. Uh-huh. So what did you think when you heard the plays when they became available, particularly with the music and the sound design on them? Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it, it, it adds an extra layer. Because they were largely recorded in sequence, I had one version of it in my head and then you hear another extra layer added on top. I have to admit, I loved there's some great music in this, great cyber themes, sort of clanking metal and so on, you know, that builds and builds. Um, really enjoyed that. Something else I particularly noticed was there's some really good sound design in the scenes in part one where the brigadier goes up the hill and he first kind of encounters the ghosts, or the voices from the past. And one of the things that really struck me in that was there's, a, there's some nice sound design going on with them. Um, wind blowing past i mean i i think i'm sure the script would have specified um, the atmospherics and the and the wind and so on but one of the things i rather liked about the sound design there was that you can it sounds like wind blowing against a microphone because you know what that sound sounds like and it, it it immediately makes you think that this is recorded on location rather than in a studio and in several people's bedrooms all around the country it really places you in the moment and i thought there was some some great sound design there as the layers of reality shift. I can almost feel the temperature dropping in those scenes. So my compliments to the sound designer. (laughs) Well, that's quite convenient that you say that, Roy, because we're now going to be joined by a fellow Scot who I spoke with on another occasion. As we speak, it's actually going to be in the future, but by the time listeners will hear it, it's the present. It's time to speak to that man, Ian Meadows. Hello, my name is Ian Meadows and I am, was the sound designer on the Doctor Who stories in the box set, Old Friends. Welcome to the Power of Three podcast, Ian. Thank you for having me. It's nice to be here. I would imagine that people listening might be thinking, Ian Meadows, he's from south of the border, but I suppose I better explain that you're actually Scottish despite the accent. Yeah, I mean, it's... it's a, it's a funny thing that you move down south and one of the things, well, this never really happened to Amy Pond, but it <laughs> happened to me that, you know, one of the things that you do is kind of, you know, you fit in and so you kind of lose the accent. But yeah, my formative years were spent in Eyemouth, which is just over the border. So in the lowlands, um, I think, well, maybe the Highlanders would still call us Sassanites. I don't know, but I think uh, they would. yeah, that's where. yeah i think they would as well but yes and now i find myself back in scotland because i am up in the uh, the west 
highlands in a place called Gerwark, which is absolutely beautiful. So, cottage history. Yeah, so it must have been quite a bit of a thrill for you doing some Doctor Who stories, sound design for stories set in your homeland over the past few Ninth Doctor sets. It's always a joy, but when you get something which is close to home, I think there was um, there was another episode where, not in this box set, but where I was able to utilise some sounds that I'd recorded actually when I went back to Ironmouth not so long ago and had a bit of a, a you know a holiday there with with my wife. You know, I said, look. I'll, show you where I grew up and um, we were doing all the, the stuff around the borders in Northumberland and recording because when you're doing sound design you're always listening out for things and there was a great wind on Holy Island and I thought I've got to record this but yeah it's I mean it's always great I think when you get stuff which is very close to home and this is this is about as close to home as you can get but it's lovely because of course anything that means that Scotland gets a bit of recognition. That's all right in my book. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I think this release here with the stories we've just been talking about with Roy, the way of the Burry Man and the fourth generation being set in and around the fourth railway bridge, that instantly, it must be a sort of like manna for heaven for you when you've got something that's so recognisable. People will know that sound of trains in the distance, that sound that we get as the rails vibrate. And mm. that that whole train sort of shorthand that that's probably helped sell it in a lot of ways, but also poses its own difficulties, I'd imagine as well. Well, you are right uh, on both counts. I, I think that when you you are doing the sound design, you are looking at the the difficulties that you're going to have to overcome, not in a negative way, but because you you, you have to kind of work it out because you want to get it right. And that sound, believe it or not, that sound, I know. You just can hear it, can't you? As soon as you say the train is coming and you can hear that in your mind, you can hear that sound that the tracks make, but it's incredibly difficult to capture. So there aren't too many sounds where you can actually just take that off the peg. So I think what I ended up doing, just for the briefest of moments, because we, where we used to live I was very lucky because there was a station not too far away and also because of the pandemic and the fact that there weren't too many people around and the trains were still running I managed to just grab a snippet of it uh, the quality of the recording wasn't too brilliant because I think by that stage we were kind of packing stuff up bit by bit because we, we kind of knew that we were we were doing this this move so I didn't have the best of recording equipment but that's the thing you you just work with what you've got uh, and then you can there are certain things that you could do to augment that sound but yeah the, the core of it was there so i was quite pleased about that yeah so could you maybe explain a wee bit about your process for sound design is it a case of read through the script once get an idea in your head then go through it and mark it up again for things that you'll need to know what you've got and know what you'll need to source sometimes sometimes i'm just a bit too eager and i go right let's just jump in and start sound designing which is a bit of an irresponsible way to do it but i think most of the time yeah you you do read the script and you kind of get an idea of what you're going to need and sometimes that that leads to days where you're just spent trying to create certain sounds and sometimes those days are more successful than others because you can sometimes come out after having a play and trying to get those sounds trying to create interesting 
noises and you think, oh, I've done, I've done nothing really today. But of course, the reality is that you, you have, it's just that you might not have too much to show for it, but it's all a learn, learning curve. But yeah, the proper way to do it is to read the script and to see what you need. But there have been occasions, I'm ashamed to say, where I've just been so eager to get on with the story that I've kind of jumped in and then I've, I've done the sounds as I've gone along. Uh, the Prisoner was a good example of that. I, 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 that was a lovely series to do and I loved it. Uh, and I was quite, on the second box set, I was quite eager. But by then, of course, I'd, I'd got quite a few of the sounds that I would need. So for example, if I was going into The Prisoner again, I know that I've got the Rover sounds now and I've got the basic village sounds and things like that. So to a degree, it, it sort of is the same with, uh, with Doctor Who. There, there are some sounds that you know that you've gotten that will always be there. And the TARDIS is one of them. The Sonic is another. The coat is another because I did all the, the phony and the moving around wearing Eccleston's, not his actual coat, but a coat very like it uh, for the first box set. So yeah, there were some things that were there, but yeah, some of the Cybermen uh, and some of the sounds that were needed there were quite interesting and challenging, I think, because you have to make sure that you've got them and it's, you know, it's all working. Particularly given that you've got a new breed of Cybermen here who are more steampunk. So I suppose you'd get a bit more sort of leeway that way to create your own sound for them. Yeah. When I first read that, I was I was talking to people and saying, What do you what do you is there a particular sound you've got in mind for these? What do you think they sound like? And then in the end I just thought, wow, I'm just gonna go with what the script says, which as you say, it's it's steampunk, and so they are a bit more. And of course, the fact that they are creatures which are, are made from the same sort of steel as the fourth bridge, that kind of gives you a bit of a steer on the kind of sound that you should be making. I think there might be a, a, literally a little bit of steam in there as well somewhere, buried in, in the mix. But yeah, they I suppose they were a bit closer in some ways to the traditional or the new series Cybermen, but that, that traditional steel thing that you see looming. I think we've succeeded. I hope we've succeeded because I think they do sound heavy and they do sound menacing. And I, I, I think I tweeted that these, these Cybermen are very dangerous. And once you've listened to the stories, you'll know they are dangerous. I think the end of that, that uh, the Way of the Berryman, that first episode, which sets up the finale, I mean, that was, that's a real moment of peril and I love that in scripts like that because all too often I suppose there's a complacency that the Doctor will always win but there is a real sense of peril and danger because these Cybermen are they're unlike any other Cybermen they're really ruthless that's because they're made in Scotland from girders <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah were there any particular issues or you know more difficult things that you had across these stories to do or were they nothing particularly challenging no there was actually because part of part of the, the stories it's when the cybermen climb up the fourth bridge uh, this might be a spoiler if you haven't listened to it but they climb up the fourth bridge and that was quite challenging especially as the perspective of them climbing up is is from the passenger's point of view so that brings an element of challenge. And then actually when they come into the train as well, it's quite often stuff that you would maybe take for granted. You know, 
like a character being on a train isn't anything special, but when it's a Cyberman on a train, that's different. And so that, that was a degree of difficulty. And then also, I think when uh, the, the, I think Sam and the Doctor and the Brigadier, they're going over the, uh, over the water in the speedboat on the fourth, Firth of Fourth. And yeah, so you've got to, that sort of sense of momentum, that sense of, you know, the wind being in their, their faces as it would be in a speedboat. So that, again, that was, that was a bit of a challenge. And I think helicopters are always a bit challenging as well because helicopters, you've got to make them sound right and you've got to make the perspective sound right. So that's quite a difficult job. I found the same sort of thing in Attergirl, actually, when we were doing the sound design for that. Anything that's aerial, you want it to sound proper. You want it to sound like it's in, it, it's framed in the right way. Does that make sense? It makes sense to me. Yes. Yeah. So there are, there are some challenges there. And sometimes it's it's those scenes where you read it and you think, oh, that that seems fairly straightforward. And then when you get into it, you think, actually, this isn't that straightforward. Yeah. So I, I was just going to say there was one other thing that I didn't mention, and that was when the Cybermen walk into the water. That was quite difficult as well because I thought, oh, okay, how am I going to do that? How did you solve that one? I just had to do a lot of splashing and, and wading and hope that it hope that it worked because I thought. I remember thinking, oh, I can't make it a very long sequence. That might just be a bit boring. Um, so, you know, they're going to have to disappear into the water. But it's, I mean, it's horrific, actually. That's the other thing about it. It was such a horrific idea that these people just, you know, they were going to walk underwater because they didn't need to, they had advanced respiratory systems that meant that they weren't really breathing in, in the conventional way. And, and when, of course, the conversions are happening, you know, you have to try you've got to be careful with the horror there actually because you know it's on the beach and i tried to put it in the background to the one side but you hear people screaming and you know being converted i mean it's, it's ghastly really i mean but that, as i say the beautiful thing about these side men is they're so dangerous i'd love to see them on screen i think that would be brilliant to see yeah. them on screen something that roy as the writer wanted to know was there's the scene where the Doctor and the Brigadier are talking on the hillside and it's quite windy. And Roy thought that at one point it sounded almost like the wind was hitting, you know, almost like hitting a microphone. So it sounded like it had been recorded on location for real. Was that a deliberate thing? I have to say that's probably something that just came out of the process of putting it together. I mean, that wind would have been recorded on location mm -hmm. and we've got such an amazing gale outside my window at the moment which is which is blowing that i really should be out there recording it because the wind is wind is a strange thing i mean it, it's such an elemental force and it's so powerful and yet capturing it in sound is it sometimes could be quite quite difficult so yeah i think that that probably i mean i'd love to take the credit for that but i think that's just probably a happy accident of, of putting it together so We'll give the wind the credit for that one. But I was quite pleased. Uh, I know. I was quite pleased, though, with, with... I think you get a sense of whether a scene is working or not. And I think those scenes where they are in that kind of really blustery environment, and they did work, and I was quite happy with those. Yeah. It must be quite exciting for you, knowing that you've done your part and the sound design's all done and off the files go, and then Howard Carter adds his musical magic to it as well. And it must be, it must sound really different, even when, obviously you'll know it, 
you know what the sound design is like. But when you hear the finished play with all the music on it, it must still sort of make you go, ooh. Very much so, because, I mean, Howard's a genius. Howard's, I don't think people sometimes give the musicians the credit that, that they deserve, because that little extra sprinkling of, of magic, and Howard is, his work is beautiful. It works in compliment. Sometimes music can, if you watch, well, I, I think maybe the last two or three series of Doctor Who, I found that the music has overwhelmed the, the sound design, which is often really beautiful and really subtle, and they've really paid attention to it. You know, so on TV, that can be something which is which is irksome. Um, when you haven't got, the, but you've got visuals to go with it. So if you haven't got visuals and you're just purely working in audio, and the music is, is overwhelming the action. I think that that can be distracting, but Howard's work is beautiful and it's balanced beautifully as well so that everything comes through. So it really is. And I, I do look forward to, to hearing what Howard's done. And I do get a bit of a grin on my face, sometimes subconsciously as I'm listening. I still have to pinch myself and think, oh, I did that. And Howard did that. And we made this, you know, but of course it all starts with the words, you know, it will be be nothing without the words. So, and you, you have to take your hat off to the writers because you know they're coming up with story after story after story, and um, they're coming up with uh, ever more fiendish ways to make life interesting. You know, so it's all good. Because I imagine that most scripts, are, and obviously I know quite a lot of these scripts, having done the vortex previews, and there's sometimes there are directions in there for sound design. I take it you use those as a starting point and think, okay, that's what I said, but what if we did this? Because obviously that's your area of expertise and just take it a little bit further. Yeah, I think, I mean, you have to stay true to, to the writer's vision of, of what they want. But yeah, sometimes, yeah, sometimes you, you do think, yeah, well, actually, you know, we, we could add this or we could embellish this or sometimes it sort of moves away from, from it's still the core of what the writer has expressed should be happening but sometimes you do kind of move away and it sort of takes on a life of its own and i mean if the director's not happy i mean they'll they'll tell you quickly and and so you'll you'll put it right but quite often you just get something that works i think i mean at the end of the day all i want to do is just make sure that everybody's everybody's happy and that we've got a cracking yarn when you're in the midst of it sometimes can be a little bit difficult to see the wood from the trees because you get so involved in it which is which is why it's so good that you have the director who's there to say no actually we need a bit more of this and a bit less of this or perhaps a bit more here and could you perhaps tweak that area over there so the level of checks that it goes through to make sure that it's spot on that's quite a reassuring thing because you can do too much sometimes i think um, and sometimes you need to take a, a bit of a step back one final question. You mentioned the phrase uh, a couple of minutes ago of pinching yourself. Did you ever think you would be working in Christopher Eccleston stories? No, do you know, I never thought they'd get Christopher Eccleston. And then it was it was an interesting thing when, when David cryptically said, there's a project coming up. Would you like to work on it? It, it will be longer than normal, but I can't tell you what the project is. And I was like, okay, all right. Because, you know, sometimes these things, you know, they have to be shrouded in secrecy. And I felt, well, you know, whatever it is, it will be good because it always is with Big Finish. And then when I think 
I've said before, and it's absolutely true, that I think my heart missed the beat when I saw what the project was. I was like, no, well, I mean, I think there might have been a few expletives as I was like, no way. You know, and then you think, I am doing Eccleston. I am going to be doing this series. And, you know, it was, it was a really big deal. I think most of us who watched Doctor Who loved Eccleston, and it was such a shame when he only did... I'm not taking anything away from David or or Matt or Peter um, or Jody afterwards, but you know when when Chris had brought the show back, if it hadn't have worked, that would have been the end. But the fact that he was so flipping good, and but we got such a tragic Doctor in many ways, and only 13 episodes. So uh, I mean, I, I do, I I just have to pinch myself because it's uh, I mean it's the dream, isn't it? It's just a dream. Um, I'm always afraid that I'm going to wake up and think, oh, but no, it's it's brilliant. I, I genuinely love my job. And, and they do say that if you can, if you can do what you love, you're never going to work. So, and that's, that's what, it feels like fun. It doesn't feel like work. I'm disappointed that you said it was brilliant and not fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Ian, thank you so much for joining us in The Power of Three. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on and hopefully we'll speak very soon. Yeah, thank you. Of course, something that a lot of people didn't know, but something that we did know, was that the Cybermen were in the story and it was a wonderful idea by Big Finish to keep that secret, wasn't it? So there's an element of surprise on the day of release. I think I didn't know we were going to keep them secret when I was writing it. In some ways, the structure of the story lends itself to that because one of the things I, I spoke about to with Matt was the, the idea that a lot of new series two-parters, they do these left turns from part one to part two. They, they, they suddenly wrong-foot you a little bit. Stephen Moffat's stories particularly do this. But even in, in Chris's season, Between Bad Wolf and Parting of the Ways, what it seems to be about for most of part one is not what it's about for all part two. So it was always going to be the case that part one was going to focus more on, on the location and the brig and Sam and Fiona and start to hint towards the end how the Cybermen were connected to these uh, events. So I think it, it, it helped with that. And um, I think we'd chosen titles which didn't scream the fact the Cybermen were there. I got an email through from marketing at Big Finishing. We're going to keep this quiet. And I thought this is really quite exciting. I mean, I quite loved the whole idea that we had a fake cover. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, if you look at uh, the episode synopsis on the website, there, there's nothing inaccurate in them, but they're very carefully worded to avoid saying who the enemy is. And I must say, I really thought someone was going to guess. I thought someone was going to guess because uh, there is this little hint, uh, uh, we, me and John Dorney worked out uh, in his story, the Cybermen kind of says, you know, they, they must not come forth. And that line is not explained in the story, but I imagine everyone was just so busy being blown away by what John Dorney was doing with the Metropolis and the Cybermen, it maybe just passed them by. Uh, so I, I kind of thought it might come back when the titles were out there, and I don't think it did. And the other thing which kind of amazed me, I mean, if any of Anyone out there listening to this has a copy of SFX magazine from a time from the time when Chris was always being interviewed to launch the season. If you go back and read that, he talks at great length 
about this particular, I think he was interviewed not sh shortly after after making this one. He talks at great length about the Berryman and the Cybermen and doing something new with them and how amazing he thought Ellen the Lawless was and how he loved working with this, the, the pagan figure of the Berryman and all that kind of thing. And, you know, I thought someone's going to have remembered reading that interview and they'll be out saying something. But I don't think they did. I mean, obviously, I'm not over every part of the internet. But did you see anything, Kenny? No, nope, absolutely nothing. No, nope, nothing. Because was, the thing that I know that we had a good chat when we uh -huh. were doing the Vortex preview, sort of like, yeah, how yeah, do yeah. we do it? And almost like, cause yes. I think, because you know, at one point, I had a really bad idea of using starting every sentence with a letter and building with up to say the, the Cybermen are in this or something along yeah, those yeah, lines. Yeah. And you talked me out of it because you thought just in case somebody just picks up case. on it. And I thought, I know, no, it's it not worth so it. I don't want to ruin the surprise. But that was, again, thank you for being a good mate and sorting me out on that one. <laughs> <laughs> it was a te really tempting idea. I was thinking about, is there any way I could do that kind of initial capital thing? Is it, it was called an acrostic, I think, um, mm -hmm. in a tweeter or, or something. And it was just too, by the time, what usually gives those things away is when, you know, the, the language slips a bit and it becomes a bit unnatural. So I thought, no, I don't want to risk it. I don't want mm -hmm. anyone to know. And something else I noticed, I did see, because I, I get tweeted a great deal about these things, I did see a couple of people kind of say, I was a pity you couldn't have kept it quiet a little bit longer. Mm -hmm. But I have to say, I think the timing was just right, because the second that story came out, I mean, before even before that amazing CGI trailer with all the Cybermen was launched, even before there was an official tweet with the covers or anything, someone on my timeline, the second these stories were out, had screen grabbed the, 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 the complete covers and shared them and said, the Cybermen are back! And I thought, you know, we kept it secret to the, the only way it could have been kept secret even longer is if the, the Cybermen hadn't been on the covers at all. And even then, as soon as someone had listened to the right part of the story, it would have been all over the internet. So I think anyone who's saying we should have kept a secret a little bit longer needs to think a little bit more about the practicalities of that. And just, I'm just really pleased we managed to give people a, a big surprise. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I think it was great. Um, I, mean, I hope people seem to get a thrill out of it. And uh, I certainly got a thrill out of it. Oh, me too. Because the fact that we'd kept the secret for so long and then it's yeah. in there and it's like, yay! I mean, you mentioned the covers there. How great are they for the, across the whole box set? In fact, across all these Eccleston sets. They're fabulous pieces of work. And uh, I have to say, I loved the way that the shape of the, the fourth bridge is used as part of the design on the covers of my two episodes. I love the way that it kind of, uh, it's echoed in the lines around them and we've got the rivets and so on and there's a lovely subtle piece of design as well on fourth generation where behind the, the Creole Mondas Cybermen we've got an eye plate of the steel bridge Cybermen and it's just looking out behind them so I think they're they're beautiful bits of design and I cannot wait to get my vinyl of it and it, it will be going up on my wall no doubt about it so my compliments to the designer <laughs> that's a Good shout, actually. Let's speak to Tom Webster now, because, believe it or not, Roy, that was almost like a perfect link into it to speak to the man. I must have some kind of pre-cognitive facility or something. Weird timey-wimey. <laughs> yep, so let's hear from the man himself, Mr Tom Webster. I'm Tom Webster. I've been 
big finish cover designer for about nine years eight nine years now and yes i worked on the ninth doctor releases and they were an amazing amazing fun to do they definitely are gorgeous pieces of work so tom thank you so much for coming on and having a wee chat with us on the power of three it's an absolute joy oh um thank you for having me honestly I, I, yeah any, any opportunity to talk about Doctor Who and, and design work, I love it, love it. You must have been absolutely delighted when you were handed the chance to do these releases because, you know, when it, I suppose we never thought Chris Eccleston would do Doctor Who again and then lo and behold he has and then you get that commission to, to illustrate these stories. Oh man, yeah. I, I mean, when I when I started, I mean, you know, you, you couldn't dream you'd be back, but yeah, like what an opportunity, and I'm so grateful for it. And yeah, it's probably the most exciting set that I've I worked on. I mean, yeah, Christopher Eccleston being back, it's amazing. It's a great opportunity to um, further further the imagery from his era, but also sort of hark back to the style that we were getting at the time. Especially with those lovely vanilla DVD releases. So, yeah, you want to make it look new and fresh, but also, you know, nostalgic. It's a Saturday tea time 2005 all over again sort of thing, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I can remember those days. I was absolutely gobsmacked when I saw these covers coming out. And I thought, here's the first one, and here's the second. Thought, this cover scheme seems familiar. I wonder if it's going in the way that I think. And, Obviously it was, because I think that's something that must have just lent itself so nicely for you, just to, to use that as a touchstone to start from. Yeah, I, I think uh, Stuart Crouch, who, who did those um, vanilla designs initially, like his work so inspiring. And um, what he did like in 2000, even like in 2008 is still like photographically the way he, he works with images and, and the colors and it stands up now you know he was with his work back then was so ahead of his time it's unreal and um yeah mad mad inspiring stuff and um yeah so it was a little sort of love letter to his his work i suppose the thing with these is that obviously we've seen some big finish releases are just getting one cover across them but because these are getting vinyl releases you get the chance to not only do the outer cover, but you also get to do for each one, three individual covers. So that must've been a bit of a treat for you as well. Oh yeah, it's, I mean, so much fun. Um, really focusing in because because they're massive format. So you gotta have a bit more of an eye for detail because yeah, they're surprisingly big when, they, when, you, when you see them in the flesh. So yeah, you gotta really make sure they're really sharp and the quality is excellent across it all. And then, um, yeah, it gives you a chance to, to do things in a little bit more detail, I think. And yeah. So what sort of size and resolutions are you working at when you're doing these? So with a CD, I'll usually be 300, standard 300. But because I like everything to look really sharp anyway, I'll double that for the CDs. And then, you know, it's shrunk down. And then for these, it's doubled again. <laughs> so they're, they're absolutely massive. Yeah, they're great fun. But fortunately, just before I got it, I um, was able to, to get a new computer. Otherwise, I couldn't have done it. <laughs> computer would have been blown up. Definitely would have blown up. <laughs> so what's your process for a cover? Is it a case of have a read through the script and see what leaps out at it? Or are you given some pointers by the likes of David Richardson as producer? 
Oh yeah, I mean it's mainly script script led. I think it's it's best to um, you know I think when they let go of the process and give it to a designer, they are obviously going to have a, a different sort of image uh, on it and different instincts to someone that doesn't design. So yeah, I, I looked into the scripts and um, I think they're, they're like an elevator pitch, aren't they? You know, you've got to grab people within two seconds. So, you know, I read about, you know, sometimes you can get enough for a cover in the first quarter of a script, you know, sometimes half, but I, I never really go like fully all the way through them. It, it tends, most of the information is there, like sort of first half see the images that grab you usually starts with a picture of the doctor and then sort of grows around there um i know some people draw their designs out but i just sort of just throw it all throw it all in there and hope for the best you know yeah changes and and the colors are always key and a color a color always jumps out of you when when you're reading the script like the atmosphere they create yeah, so that, that that that'll be it. And then sometimes a producer might, you know, might have a, an idea as well, and I'm yeah, happy to work that in. Have you had any yeah. particular favourites out of these ones? Because there's some real beauts in there. It's really hard to pick a favourite. I mean, you're talking about sort of colours and stuff, because like the Curse of Lady Macbeth is just that is just it just feels so Scottish and murky and all those colours and fog and <laughs> mist and stuff like that. So yeah, I approve of that. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed doing that one, and also just because of the the time it was set, it's nice to sort of imagine it's a some kind of period drama that the BBC might put out, you know, and, or, or make it look a bit Netflixy, you know. I actually enjoyed just having three characters on that, not slap bang in the middle, because you usually do a little bit more of a movie poster style. But uh, favourites, yeah. Um, what was one of my favourites of these? Ooh. I did actually really like the box set cover for this one in that green with the amazing Cyberman. Oh my gosh, what a design. Oh, I'd love that to be on TV. Yeah. Um, is that Oliver that did that? Is it Nick Oliver? Yeah. Yeah. Phenomenal piece of work. So it's when you're given something like that to, to play with, it, it does make your job easier when it's something original and new. That, that Cyberman from Monsters in Metropolis is just fabulous. Oh yeah, I, 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 I would love that on TV, that design right there. And also, you know, makes makes the job easier when you've got an amazing render and it's just a huge Cyberman, fills up a lot of space, which <laughs> makes it a, lot, a bit easier. It's, yeah, when you've got something like that to work, everything just falls in around it, doesn't it? Yeah, it's beautiful. And then, of course, Thank when you've you. got... When you've got a story like The Way of the Burry Man and The Fourth Generation, the fact that you've got something like The Fourth Railway Bridge there is such a piece of iconic design with all those triangular shapes. And straight away, that must leap yeah. out at you and think, there we go, there's something I can work with. Yeah, we're having that, we're having that, and then we can have fun with that. I actually found a sort of, I guess it was a sort of flat outline, just a sort of line drawing of it. And it, it almost kind of looks like DNA like strands of DNA so that was yeah. fun to come 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 on that kind of play around with that and have it at weird angles and upside down and merging in with Cybermen and yeah that was really fun that's such a great thing when the story has a just a strong sense of setting as well yeah, yeah and really helpful visually for visually for when you're listening to it or the or the, or the cover you know yeah 
Yeah, and particularly when there's things like rivets as well. When you've got something like that bridge, is there's all these wonderful Victorian age rivets and things like that, which just makes wee bits you can just drop in here and there as well. Yeah, yeah, all flying out at you, and yeah, kind of dare I say a bit steampunk, which is um, fantastic. Yeah, fun, always fun to do. Yeah. Rust and yeah, it's what we think of when we think of Cybermen. <laughs> yeah, was there ever? Any consideration to show these new look Cybermen with this rusty look and being a bit more steampunk? Is oh yeah, and um, is that something you'd like to have done? Oh yes, I would love to. I mean, I think they they'd be. Um, I think there was talk that they would be red or, or sort of yeah, what colour the, the bridges. Um, if we'd had a render, if we'd had time, it would have been great to have one of those front and centre. But we, we went with um, the Tenth Planet one again. Kind of have a, have a suggestion of it behind <laughs> uh, the sort of just the eyes, which is always fun with that teardrop shape. Um, yeah. yeah, I wish there was more time to, to go really into that, actually. Yeah. And you must have been delighted with the re reaction to it when, of course, creating the false covers. And then, of course, the big reveal came along because these things are always wonderful, keeping them secret, aren't they? Oh yeah, yeah, I love doing that. Yeah, and just yeah, seeing the reaction and surprise, and it's a, a wee bit of a challenge because I I made the uh, I thought it would be a better idea to make the final one first and then strip it back, mm -hmm. but um, I found it tricky once <laughs> big Cyberman in the middle was removed and it was like oh okay we've got a lot of space to fill now, but luckily the break went quite nicely there and yeah. Good old break. Okay. Yeah, it's great to have him back as well. Um, yeah, fab. And of course, these stories have had such a great reaction, and people have been really loving the covers. And Roy was saying that he can't wait to get his vinyl so he can put it up on the wall. Yeah, absolutely. I lo yeah, they look so great together, actually. And um, yeah, I've seen a few photos of people with theirs um, displayed really nicely. And uh, yeah, just want to make people happy, really, at the end of the day, don't we? So yeah, a lot of people really love them. Yeah, yeah. job done, I hope. Yeah, and it must be really nice for yourself as well to get that reaction. Yeah, that's, that's you know, that's way better than getting paid, isn't it? Just um, to see smiles on, smiles on people's faces, that's what it's all about, isn't it? And these are things people can cherish, I hope. Yep. And, yeah. And they'll last forever, which is the great thing. Of course, the real thing yeah. that surprised me was recently you've announced that you're doing a, a big finished retirement. Yes, um, just sort of seven releases short of 400. <laughs> um, so I think that's de definitely, I'm definitely the most prolific in, in the history that Big Finish has had, which is great. I never, you know, as a little kid, I used to listen to them on tape when they were on tape and... Um, mm when they were on, I used to draw pictures or, you know, I used to use tracing paper from all the Doctor Who books that were out and make my own covers back then. So, you know, I never could have dreamt of doing it. And um, thank you to David and Nick for um, giving me the opportunity and came just at the right time as the new series stuff came in. And yeah, really, really lucky to have worked on so much stuff. You know, hope to maybe come back one day. I'd love to. Hopefully, fingers crossed, in the future, you never know. I, re I will miss it. I will miss doing Doctor Who stuff. 
You didn't get. You didn't yeah. use the quote. I thought we'd use there one day. I shall come back. Yes, I shall <laughs> come back. <laughs> I thought. I, I. I was tempted. I should have done it. Yeah, I should have done it. <laughs> well, we'll let you off. It's late in the evening as we speak. So yes, you're <laughs> forgiven. You're forgiven. For those who are looking to keep up to date with your work, Tom, where can they find you online? Uh, on Twitter, I, I guess, would be my main for, you know, Doctor Who related stuff. I, I still post a few bits every now and then for people to enjoy. Uh, yeah, so Twitter at Tom.Webster. Uh, instead of an ER at the end of Webster, it's an A. And then same on Instagram, um, but that's for more sort of fashion related stuff. A few, a few, um, Doctor Who fans and big Finnish people follow me on there and it must be it must be a bit funny to see something a bit different but yeah I, I mainly do uh, fashion on Instagram and and then comedy stuff of the RH experience on all the different platforms if you live in London come see us do a bit of improv yeah lots of different things keeping me busy <laughs> best way to be Tom best yeah. way to be oh no. best way to be indeed thank you so much for your time it's been an absolute pleasure to see you again and to have a wee chat and again thanks oh, for everything thank you. you've done with all these magnificent covers over the years oh man absolute pleasure and, and thank you everyone i hope you've really enjoyed everything over the years and yeah keep listening and um hopefully one day again at some point and uh, I'll, I'll enjoy just being a listener now as well that'd be lovely yeah brilliant yeah, you can say farewell to so reading much. those scripts in advance and there go your surprises. You can have them oh, all yeah, surprises. Exactly. No more, yeah, no more spoilers. No more spoilers. I'm looking forward to seeing what comes next for a big finish. Yeah, I'm excited. What did you think of the covers, Roy? I do think they're great pieces of work and I think he gave it a really cohesive look over the entire run as well. So, yeah. yeah. The fact that the colours are echoing the, 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 the yeah, DVDs. The DVDs. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. I absolutely love it. So yes, top work by Tom Webster. So Roy, for those who are interested in the world of social media, where can they find yes. you on the Twitters? They can find me on the Twitters at Roy underscore Gill. And that's the symbol underscore, obviously not the word. <laughs> that would just be daft. And of course, you can follow me at Finished Zine, F-I-N-I-S-H-E-D-Z-I-N-E. Or for listeners who are listening in America, that's Z-I-N-E, just to translate there for you. And of course, you can follow at Power of Three Pod with a number three. So Roy, what are you up to for the rest of today? Are you engaged on more writing projects that we will not discuss? <laughs> I am a bit engaged on more writing projects we will not discuss. I have a synopsis in at the moment, which is being glanced at by the wonderful Matt Fitton. And I'm waiting to hear what he thinks about that. And I'm just kind of doing some general research and reading around, as you do, because these things suddenly come to life and then they have to be done quite quickly sometimes <laughs> and sometimes not. So <laughs> uh, it's good to be as ready as you can be. Absolutely. I completely get that. Well, that's the end of this run of Eccleston Stories. And hopefully we'll be back to speak with some people with the next run, I mean, who knows, we might get a story set in Edinburgh and have the Doctor singing Old Lang Syne in the next run. Who knows? That's me completely speculating. But it'd be rather nice. We need to have more Doctor in Scotland. Would you agree, Roy? Definitely. Yes. I think... <laughs> but we will, I think what I will say is it's worth remembering that lots of planets have a Scotland. 
<laughs> space Scotland, there we go, with space bagpipes with lasers in them and space deadly haggis. There you go. I won't take These any commission. You're allowed to make because you actually are Scottish. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, space whiskey and space iron brew and stuff like that. You can have all this for free, Roy. I will not oh, request well. any um, royalties on these. So it's all yours. That's very, very generous. <laughs> <laughs> so, Roy, thank you so much for joining us once again on the Power sure. Three, officially your favourite podcast, probably. <laughs> that's the only one you come on to talk about. So that's good. Mm. I appreciate that. So it's a goodbye from me, Kenny Smith. And goodbye for me, Roy Gill. But Kenny, before we go today, what are we going to play out with? Well, Roy, I'm really glad you asked me that. In your story here, you've created some Cybermen who are really tough and impervious to weapons. In fact, you might say they're like LaRue and bulletproof. <laughs>